My name is Jonathan Blanks. I am the research associate in Cato's uh, project on criminal justice. I'm the managing editor of uh, policemisconduct.net. Uh, thank you all for coming. I hope you've enjoyed the program so far. It's sort of like my uh, criminal justice nerd dream come true, all these people coming up. Um, it's a who's who of my Twitter list. Uh, by the way, if you are on Twitter and you're uh, following the conversation, we ask you to use the hashtag CatoCJ. Um, and I think you're going to love this next panel about policing. I'm going to keep this pretty short because I'm recovering from a chest cold, and it's not a good thing. So um, police are the most visible and most likely direct contact the average member of the American public will come in contact with, with the government. Most people obviously don't deal with IRS agents or your average bureaucrat at the Department of Education. Well, OK, maybe in this town, but outside of that. But we see police everywhere we go, when we're driving on the street, going to the ballpark, or any public event. The rules, strategies, and technologies that govern how police interact with the public and how officers are, are held accountable for misconduct are vital to maintaining positive police community relationships. These relationships, when strained, make policing harder, and it makes them uh, more difficult to solve crimes because they cannot get cooperation from uh, the, the people they are trying to protect. This can further a cycle of resentment and diminishing public safety, particularly in our segregated minority communities. The panel we have assembled today are going to discuss a range of issues about how the police go about their jobs and the tools that they use. I will briefly introduce them all now, and you can find more information about them in the bio packets that we handed out. We'll take a Q&A from the audience, and then we'll, directly after this panel, we will hear from our keynote speaker, Adam Foss. First up is Major Max uh, Guerin of the Dallas Police Department. He is a divisional executive officer for the Southeast Patrol Division of the, of the DPD and a 24-year veteran of the department. Max is kind enough to join us for a second time in two years. We've got to be doing something right. Next up is Tracy Mears. She is the Walton Hale Hamilton Professor and Director of the Justice Collaboratory at Yale Law School. In addition, I learned today that in addition to being a former prof of one of my bosses, Jean Healy, she also taught John Pfaff from our last panel. She served on President Obama's Task Force on 21st Century Policing, and you'll find her work and that of many of our other panelists today cited in much of my work. After that is Walter Katz, who serves as Independent Police Auditor of the City of San Jose, California. He's a former public defender and has worked in civilian oversight in the LA County Sheriff's Office. I highly, also highly recommend an interview he did at Fault Lines with Scott Greenfield called Watching the Watchers. And finally, we have Elizabeth Joe of UC Davis. She teaches and writes about policing, technology, and surveillance, issues that not only touch on reform, but require formation of new policies as new technologies develop. And now, Max Garrett. Good afternoon. Uh, I'm Max Guerin. Uh, as uh, Jonathan mentioned, I'm a 24-year veteran of the Dallas Police Department. I'm currently the executive officer of our Southeast Patrol Division, which means I've got the Southeast Quadrant uh, that covers South Dallas and Pleasant Grove, um, uh, challenging socioeconomic uh, areas. Um, I've been fortunate in my career to have uh, served in a number of different uh, assignments, uh, a couple of stints as the public information officer for the department, uh, as well as a sergeant and team leader on Dallas SWAT. Uh, I want to thank Jonathan for his gracious invitation to return here to Cato, uh, and it's an, an honor to be included in this esteemed list of uh, friends and colleagues. Uh, so I want to talk about some issues, uh, three issues specifically today, uh, that 
I believe are evolving and emerging in the police profession. Uh, they're by no means all inclusive, uh, but I believe they fit together much like the puzzle uh, of the Constitution and how we go about policing uh, uh, the, the United States and our uh, criminal justice system. Um, and they all dovetail together um, to fit with the framework. A quick snapshot of those three, uh, protest, the law, and people. Um, I'll touch on the emergent nature of protest and the necessity of that response to protest to be emerging as well. Uh, and then I'll look at disruptive technology and criminal case filing and how that accountability ties into uh, criminal prosecution and public trust uh, while adhering to the Mike Michael Morton Act. And for the three of you in the audience that I think and, and the panel that are not attorneys, I'll, uh, I'll describe what Michael Morton is uh, here in just a bit. Um, and then I will, uh, that'll all dovetail into uh, the willingness of our citizens to participate on the front end of our criminal justice system and how uh, changes in policies and publicized acts of police violence, uh, be they justified or otherwise, uh, can detrimentally affect not only policing but the criminal justice system as a whole. So this picture is from July the 7th in Dallas, Texas. Uh, on the left is now Deputy Chief Lonzo Anderson. Uh, in the middle is a demonstrator against uh, police brutality with the no justice, no peace sign. And to, uh, to the right is uh, Major Paul Younger, a uh, colleague of mine. Uh, killed that day, Michael Kroll, Lauren Ahrens, Patrick Zamaripa, DART Police Officer Brent Thompson, and uh, Sergeant Mike Smith. Two of those individuals were friends of mine who I'd worked with for a number of years. The next photograph, fast forward a few months, is from the Dakota Access Pipeline demonstrations where you see uh, the Sheriff's Department there using water cannons in sub-zero or uh, freezing temperatures, uh, at least. So talking about policing protest, July 7th, I, I, I contend, was both a wonderful example and a, and a terrible tragedy. Uh, regardless of your political viewpoints or leanings, the, the President of the United States was on point, exactly right, when he praised the men and women of the Dallas Police Department for doing it, quote, the right way, and that's policing protests the right way. Um, I think our commitment to protecting the, 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 the civil rights of the demonstrators, while at the same time working to protect uh, the rest of the citizenry, was on display, uh, and it served our department well. Uh, the emergent nature of protest, and what I mean by that is the ever-changing and adapting uh, techniques, tactics, strategies of the demonstrators themselves requires that we, as police officers, uh, be flexible, and our strategies for dealing with protests need to be prepared to be emergent as well. Uh, best practices, uh, I would argue, uh, will can have, have the great potential to send you into a chaotic event. Um, so we have to remain flexible. Um, and I think our successes in the area of policing protest in Dallas have been not only because of what we've done, but because of the cooperation that we've received from the demonstrators themselves. Uh, some call it negotiated management, some call it having a conversation and getting to know who the demonstrators are and what they hope to accomplish. Um, but I believe that our efforts to facilitate and cooperate with those who want to express their First Amendment rights um, has been key. Uh, we've seen that uh, leaderless groups of demonstrators themselves often become frustrated. Um, uh, they're out there protesting and they don't know what they're going to do next. They just know that they're upset and they want to voice their concerns. 
with a little bit of direction and guidance from uh, fellow demonstrators who work to cooperate, they, they find that they're more satisfied in, in expressing that dissent, uh, even if it means marching in the streets for a period of time and coming back and holding an assembly. Um, and I think that has been uh, something of, of note, because in the days after July the 7th, we, we buried those officers, we had those uh, uh, funerals. And within days, one, one funeral in particular, we had to get together and plan for another demonstration. There was no stop to it. Um, and uh, we did so with a peaceful outcome. In the wake of an attack like that, I think it's easy uh, for police commanders to want to ratchet up the security aspect versus the liberty aspect. And I think we have to guard against that. Um, we have to be very cognizant of, of the ramifications that a toughened stance to policing protest would have uh, on our public. Um, and those questions, although philosophical, um, are real and are very important for each community uh, where this takes place. Um, the July 7th uh, protests, as I mentioned, were against police brutality. And the protests going on in North Dakota right now, while not necessarily against the police, uh, to begin with, we're, we're against government and a corporation. Uh, and we're based, in, at least in part, on an interpretation of treaty law. Uh, and as of last week, um, uh, various sources reported uh, upwards of 575 arrests um, made since, just since August. And I've said that two people trespassing in protest is a problem for those two. Uh, we as the police can easily silence those two uh, by arrest and taking them to jail. However, 2,000 people trespassing in protest becomes a crisis for law enforcement. Um, the Guardian newspaper reported over the weekend that the Department of Justice was deploying mediators to Standing Rock uh, to stand uh, with and to maintain the peace. And I find that disheartening and, and a bit troublesome that, you're, that there is a perception that you need to send mediators in to prevent violence between the peace officers themselves and, and those that are demonstrating. Uh, and I think it uh, just reiterates the, the need for an emergent uh, strategy to policing those demonstrations. Um, and I'm also disturbed that um, because American law enforcement had long since moved away from water cannons and dogs to enforce, uh, to, to police protest. And the return to that is, is troublesome. So go, going forward in the next few months, uh, departments can expect to see uh, more anti-Trump demonstrations, uh, especially on uh, Inauguration Day. Uh, those, those demonstrations uh, are, will coincide with uh, the Million Woman March, Million Women March, there are various names for it, but there you can expect to see a, a number of those uh, as we've seen. And I think it's been an emergent reaction to the election itself. And so police departments have to be prepared uh, to deal with situations that, uh, that don't fit the normal mold, uh, if there is even a mold anymore. Um, so move, moving from that very visible public front, uh, front line of policing protest to something more behind the scenes, but concerning uh, police departments is the filing of criminal cases um, at the intersection of technology and the transparency in those cases and how we move forward from that. Um, in this accelerating age of technology, we're seeing uh, more and more police departments adopting open data formats, releasing open data in uh, standardized uh, frameworks. Uh, we see departments using software to track complaints of use of force and mistreatment against officers. Um, and in keeping with that advance, many departments uh, are moving, have moved, or will soon be moving toward an end of what I call sneaker mailing uh, those criminal cases to the prosecutors. And that means hand carrying, printing out documents and hand carrying them. Uh, and that will move into electronic case filing. That sounds great. 
However, it's not as easy as simply attaching a document to an email and sending it across, um, especially when you consider Michael Morton. And for those that are unaware, Michael Morton was a man who in 1987 was wrongfully convicted in Texas for the murder of his wife. The prosecutor in his murder case was eventually uh, convicted himself for contempt of court for withholding evidence that would have proved exculpatory to Mr. Morton. So Texas and other states have adopted uh, the aptly named Michael Morton Act, which requires that all reports, statements, evidence, um, regardless of whether or not they are material uh, to guilt or punishment, be tendered to the defense um, during discovery. Um, and this requirement is inherently passed on from the prosecutor uh, to the law enforcement agency that brings that case. And in most instance, instances, it's required to be at the time of case filing. And it's much, but it's much more broad than just Michael Morton and its actual application. Um, the challenge that agencies, law enforcement agencies are dealing with are uh, the collection, uh, the storage, the retention, and then the uh, access and dissemination of various forms of evidence. We talk about in-car uh, video systems, we talk about body camera systems, um, and we try to make sure how do, we, how do we then, once we record it and store it, how do we then re-access it? How do we associate it with something that we can find uh, very easily and then tender to the defense? Um, and many of those systems don't necessarily make that retrieval or cataloging or associating bits of evidence uh, that easy. And then you deal with disparate systems. So you've got an in-car video, you've got a body camera video, you've got an, an electronic or digital audio recording that a detective made in the field uh, that all has to be uh, encapsulated and tendered in electronic format. So then you start talking about transmission, bandwidth, uh, again, storage. And many departments aren't set up uh, for that kind of bandwidth or, or that kind of activity for every single criminal case that they file. And the bigger the city, the more cases you file uh, and the more challenging that become, becomes. And then factor in, if you are unsuccessful in your attempts to do that, uh, you can expect your criminal case to be dismissed. Uh, if it, uh, um, give an example, uh, you tender evidence on discovery, someone makes an open records request, and you may have different systems for tracking that and pulling video or, or, or uh, grabbing evidence, and you get something different on your open records request versus what you as a defense attorney got um, through discovery, and there's an issue. And that it, doesn't, it won't take many of those, uh, number one, for the cases to be dismissed, and then for the uh, allegations to surface that a department or departments are hiding evidence. Um, and the perception, even if not accurate, even if the departments are well-meaning and well-intended and are trying to uh, bridge that technology gap, um, it will serve to undermine the well-meaning efforts. Um, in other words, that, that move for more police accountability and transparency by collecting this information and this video could, uh, could turn around to, to bite them, so to speak. The real and prolonged ramifications of a loss of that public trust delve and go into my next topic. What you're looking at there is a density map uh, of 911 calls placed in Milwaukee. Uh, the left-hand side shows pre-event and the right-hand side, uh, much uh, less dense, uh, shows uh, post-event. And I'll explain what I mean by that. So as I mentioned, it's a graphic of 911 calls placed in Milwaukee. Uh, researchers Desmond, Papa Christos, and Kirk analyzed 911 calls in 2005 following a highly publicized beating of a citizen by police officers. Uh, they found that even when controlling for other factors that, and I quote, residents of Milwaukee's neighborhoods, especially residents of black neighborhoods, were far less likely to report crime after this beating was broadcast. And the effect lasted for over a year and resulted 
in the total net loss of about 22,200 calls to police. So as publicized events of police violence um, increase and the availability and the, the ease to, to which we can view these via social media increases, we can expect a natural reduce in voluntary, reduction in voluntary interactions between those citizens that are affected where crime is concerned. And that makes our job that much more challenging. So, and it makes sense because if you, if you don't think that the people that you're gonna call to help you are actually gonna help you, then what's the point? What's the reason for calling? Um, you, get, you become silent or you deal uh, with it in a manner of street justice. Um, and in fact, a recent Pew Research Patrol or research poll indicates, and this is really very fascinating juxtaposed to the, these 911 call results, that African Americans are, are half as likely to have favorable view of the job that their police departments are doing, yet they are more willing than their white counterparts to participate in community partnerships with their police departments to improve those communities. So they're saying, we're not happy with, with the way you're policing us, but we want to be involved, and we want to help make this system and make our communities better. Uh, so police departments are under a mandate uh, to, uh, to work and to partner with their communities. So going forward, regardless of the administration, we have to continue to do that. Uh, and it's a fear of the delegitimization of police uh, that is an issue. Um, and we talk about it, uh, talking about immigration reform, creating lists of people based on religious preference. All of that will serve to alienate the, the communities from the police that uh, are, are there to protect and serve them. Um, in fact, a recent New Yorker article dealing with wrongful convictions pointed to a 47% jury conviction rate in the Bronx, uh, while the other four surrounding bureaus, boroughs had conviction rates of 73%. So you see that mistrust. Um, manifest itself not only in relationship with, with the police, but even farther into that criminal justice system um, and the delegitimization de that they feel um, of the system itself. Uh, and just for comparison purposes, um, uh, loose comparison purposes, looking between 2012 and 2015, uh, jury conviction rates in Dallas County for felonies was uh, about set, uh, in the mid-80s uh, for comparison. So. Uh, and the mistrial of Michael Slager, the ex-South Carolina police officer, will only serve uh, to intensify the mistrust of police and the criminal justice system as a whole. And therefore, with understanding of the sociological in-groups and how we socially form our own reality, uh, police agencies have to press on um, with that uh, endeavor. So this picture, next to pictures of me with my own children, this is one of my favorites. This was uh, following the memorial ceremony in Dallas. I happened to be walking out, and this young lady and her father uh, came by and asked to take a picture with me. And I, I think it illustrates where we need to start and continue our efforts um, uh, with dealing with the young people. So there is a police in-group that's out there who is reacting to their perception of the Black Lives Matter protests um, and the people who are critical of police saying they're a part of systemic racism. Uh, and their normal and predictable reaction has been defensive, a defensive posture, because that attack on policing is an attack on their very identity. Um, I spoke last year about how we have to uh, maintain healthy facets of our, of our personality and become, maintain our, our mental health uh, as, as police officers. Um, so we have to talk to our officers about historically where we failed as a profession, uh, and we must reinforce that empathy that, that's needed for those com communities who directly identify with that mistreatment of a system uh, and a program uh, that they see as illegitimate. 
how America polices its population and establish, establishes a benchmark for how we treat the world. Uh, and we must therefore encourage our officers to continue to seek that higher education, inform those worldviews, uh, and be critical of their own uh, professions and, and ask the tough questions uh, of themselves. Um, uh, and I think there is reason for encouragement. Professor Samuel Walker, who spoke here at Cato last year on this panel, uh, discussed recently pointing out uh, that the most recent police use of force um, uh, recommendations have come uh, from police leaders, and they have been more restrictive than the Supreme Court. So I think that's encouraging um, to go forth regardless, again, of politics. Um, and lastly, we must continue to press for the release of more open data. Uh, we must continue to work to remove all iterations of the blue wall of silence. And what I mean by that is that anything that supports the inherent insular nature, nature of a policing protest, uh, transforming a culture where greater, greater honesty and reporting of wrongdoing becomes the norm and is celebrated as opposed to ostracized. And, and to put it simply, stop using phrases like the integrity of the investigation as an excuse for not releasing benign information to the public. Uh, there are, of course, things that can't be released during an ongoing criminal investigation, uh, but too often we use that, uh, that moniker, integrity investigation, as a reason not to say anything, uh, only to our detriment. Uh, again, because silence all too often is perceived as dishonesty. Um, and this all needs to happen before the next crisis. So uh, with that, I will sit down. I thank you for the opportunity. I look forward to my colleagues, and um, I will briefly, for those interested, I will show references. <laughs> and that. Thank you very much. That was impressive. I was watching the clock tick down, and you ended exactly on zero. I don't think I've ever seen anybody do that. Good afternoon, everyone. Um, I'm Tracy Mears, as Jonathan said, and I'm really happy to be here. I've never actually, that's not true. I was going to say I've never been invited to Cato. I was. I just couldn't come. I've never been here, and I'm happy to come to this um, organization and, and hear people that I've admired and, and interact with so many of you. Um, I think what I'm about to say will actually dovetail nicely with what Major Guerin said. What I'm going to do is to talk a little bit about the science behind the social science of legitimacy and um, also talk a little bit about my work on the President's Task Force, 21st Century Policing. I don't have a PowerPoint, so it's just going to be me and you talking. Um, on October 16th of this year, the president of the International Association of Chiefs of Police, that's the IACP, his name is Terrence Cunningham, apologized for historical mistreatment by police of minorities, calling it, and I'm quoting, a dark side of our shared history, end quote, that must be acknowledged and overcome. He said, we cannot change the past, but we must change the future. Now, I don't know how many of you noticed um, the media accounts of this apology. And um, many people were impressed. Many people you know, weren't very impressed. A lot of people thought it was just another instance of cheap talk. Um, but to put his comments into per perspective, let me tell you another story. Now, this story um, takes place in about March, I'd say, well, spring of 2008. 
It was after, uh, I'm, I'm sorry, 2009. It was after President Obama was inaugurated and um, the then director of the COPS office, the director before Ron Davis, who I understand was a speaker here last year, Barney Malekian, had a group of police chiefs and other executive leaders that he brought in to learn about an emerging social science of trust and legitimacy. So my colleague, Tom Tyler, and I came and spoke to this group of people. And about halfway through, an executive, I won't say what role this person played, because then you could actually identify him, um, walked out halfway through and said to Barney Malekian, this is BS. Now, what we were talking about was procedural justice. Now, eight years later, the International Association of Chiefs of Police meeting was essentially, this is the one that just happened, the procedural justice show. There were over 13 sessions focusing on procedural justice and legitimacy, and then, of course, Cunningham's apology. Now, I thought this was very notable because the President's Task Force in 21st Century Policing made these ideas one of the pillars of our work. Um, and for those of you who don't know, the task force was 11 Americans from different walks of life, police chiefs, scholars, um, union leaders, civil rights lawyers, and Brian Stevenson, who's in a category by himself. Um, we all came together to offer recommendations to the president about how to enhance trust while promoting public safety. And our six pillars were trust and legitimacy, policy and accountability, social media, community policing, training, and officer safety and wellness. And since our report was introduced, the COPS office has spent a lot of time and effort and other constituent parts of the Office of Justice programs. The COPS office is not in the Office of Justice programs, but they work together. It's been working to implement these ideas. Now, I want to tell you a little bit about what I mean by procedural justice, if you don't know what it means. But a framing idea is this, and that is that policing has been concerned overwhelmingly with public safety over the last 20 or 30 years, as defined by enhancing the technologies of crime reduction, often defined as aggressive, proactive policing. And what's interesting about this is that crime has gone down over the last 30 years or so, quite substantially. And policing has played some role in that. Um, and some of that role is because of these technologies, right? Um, but what's interesting is that even while crime has gone down, and even while police have played some role in this, if you look at polls or other measures of the levels of confidence and trust that the public holds in police over time, you'll see that those um, polls show that confidence has remained roughly flat. There is a racial gap, um, as Major Guerin mentioned, but still, there's no change. And that's not what you should find, is it, if we think that people's evaluation of the police officers or police agencies' job at enhancing crime reduction is related to their trust in those agencies. You should expect, as crime goes down, for confidence to go up, but that's not what we see. And there's a question about why that is. How do we understand 
that trust really hasn't changed. Social science of legitimacy tells us that trust and authority is closely tied to perceptions of legitimacy of state authority. And here, I'm actually talking about positive measurements of legitimacy and not normative analyses of it. So this is not a philosophical endeavor. This is really about asking people what they think, how they come to conclusions and judgments about what's fair when they're dealing with state authorities, and you know, demonstrating that for better or for worse. Right? And here's what we know. People tend to place much more weight on how authorities exercise their power as opposed to the ends for which that power is exercised. What that means is that people care much more about processes, their evaluations of interactions, than they care about whether an outcome of an interaction favors them, or an evaluation, let's say, of the effectiveness of the enforcers or legal authorities doing those jobs. And this is true no matter what kind of leader or authority we're talking about. Cops, prosecutors, judges, political leaders, managers, teachers, etc. The other thing we know is that these ideas of perceptions of legitimacy are tied to four factors. And these four factors are what make up procedural justice. And I'm going to list them for you. The first is voice. People care a great deal about their opportunity to have an op have an opportunity to tell their side of the story in an interaction, or if we're talking about policymaking, having an opportunity to provide input into those policies. And people care about this even if it makes no difference to the outcome of the interaction. That might be surprising to you, but one way to think about it is if you have ever gotten a ticket for speeding or had been stopped by a police officer for something like that, and the police officer was a jerk, and then you didn't get the ticket, do you feel better or worse about the situation where you got a ticket? You know, this is conditional on knowing that, you know, you were going 75 in the 45 mile mark per hour speed zone, and the person was nice to you. On average, people tend to feel better about the situation where they get the ticket and the officer is nice and respectful. Second, people care a lot about decision-making fairness. They are looking for transparency. They're looking for factuality. They're looking for, um, the, they're looking for the ways in which the authority will connect up the fact of the matter of what happened to the judgment. They're looking for neutrality and signs of lack of bias. Third, people care a great deal about being treated with dignity and respect for their rights. It's pretty basic and reflects the first factor. And fourth, and this one's a little bit complicated, people care about being able to assess the motives of the legal authority that they're dealing with. They want to be able to trust that that legal authority that they're dealing with will treat them benevolently in the future. I like to summarize the fourth factor in this way, and that is people want to believe that the legal authority they're dealing with believes that they count. It's pretty simple, right? So if I'm dealing with a cop like Major Guerin, I want to believe that you believe that I count. And what's really interesting about that is that, of course, I can't see into his head. I have no idea what he believes, 
right? So I'm going to make judgments about what I think he believes based on how he's treating me. But not only how he's treating me, how he's treating other people like me. And that's where the apology comes in. Because often when people are talking about procedural justice and legitimacy, they think about this as a transactional enterprise. It's all about the particular enterprise. Is the officer giving the person voice? Are they engaging in processes that indicate that the decision making is fair? Are they treating the person with dignity and respect? And in that world, if it's all transactional, then the fourth factor is just simply a reflection or summary of the other ones. But in fact, that fourth factor can be one of the most important factors because it can take on aspects of the interaction that people have with the state beyond the particular interaction. So it will matter to me in a world in which, in my community, police have historically mistreated people like me that the police leader has taken an opportunity to at least acknowledge past wrongdoing. It's awful hard for me to trust what that person or members of the agency are going to do in the future and expect that members of that agency are going to treat me benevolently in the future if they can't even acknowledge what they've done in the past. And this is why and the President's task force, our second recommendation, recommendation 1.2, was that policing agencies should acknowledge discrimination and wrongdoing in the past and present by policing agencies of groups that they've dealt with. So Terrence Cunningham at least got part of that. And that's why when I read about the apology, I was extremely excited. One more point on the history, a very compelling story that I tell sometimes that will sort of bring point home, I think. Um, the police chief in Montgomery, Alabama, once um, engaged in an act like this when John Lewis came back home to, um, in, a, in a celebration of the Freedom Riders' work in Montgomery. And the police chief at that time, he's no longer the police chief, apologized to John Lewis for what the Montgomery police had done at the time and their failure to protect the Freedom Riders, who the police chief said were doing more to advance constitutional rights than the Montgomery police did at the time. So first, he apologized. And then second, that police chief gave John Lewis his badge and said, this represents your work right, in protecting constitutional rights. It's those kinds of things, I think, that reflect what we were trying to get at in the President's task force work and recommendation 1.2. All right, so given that this kind of work seems to have gained ascendancy in the last eight years and that so many policing agencies are really dedicated to doing this kind of work to promote not only good relations with the community, as Major Guerin was just talking about, but also you know, thinking about how to promote these ideas of procedural justice, not only among ag between agencies and the public they serve, but within the agencies themselves. That's really key. There's an important question, I think, 
about what's going to happen in the next four years on this work. So I just want to say a few things about that in the few minutes that I have left. The COPS office issued a report yesterday. So if I did have a, a PowerPoint, I would put this up at this point. If you go to the COPS office, you will see a report called the State of Policing 2016. And what that report does is actually show what's happened over the last two years as um, the Department of Justice has attempted to implement and issue grants in support of the recommendations of the President's task force. And I can tell you that there are at least 50 grants that have been closed and agreed to from the COPS office that um, will be undertaken for the next 16 or 17 months, all about the kinds of things that you've already heard our panelists talk about and probably you'll hear the other two panelists talk about. Certainly, I know Walter will be talking about this kind of work. Um, and to me, that's really good news. Um, second, other than the, the, the 50 grants and the state of policing report, we know that agencies across the country have taken on these ideas and see it as beneficial not only to them in terms of the ways in which they're serving their communities, but especially to the officers themselves. And so I just want to say a, a quick word about that, which is you know, policing as a profession is um, very stressful. Police officers have very high rates of alcoholism, heart disease, their children have some of the highest rates of suicide of any other profession's children. Um, and so we have thought of the fact that the sixth pillar of the President's Task Force report was as critical as the first. The sixth, I'll just remind you, is officer safety and wellness. I think once we get officers themselves to understand the importance of doing this kind of work to enhance trust, we not only build um, good relationships between policing agencies and the public they serve, but we also begin, I hope, to change some of the political dynamics that some of the uh, panelists and previous panels here were talking about. It starts from inside. Thank you. Wow, I have to uh, follow Max and Tracy. Uh, you know, when I was a trial lawyer, the thing you hated the most was having to go in front of the jury after lunch when the prosecution got to close before lunch. Uh, so here we are. Uh, first of all, I want to thank everybody at the Cato Institute, uh, Tim Lynch, Jonathan, for, for inviting me to be here. Uh, I, it's a real honor. And of course, my esteemed colleagues, who I've known now for a matter of time, either in person or electronically. So thanks, everybody. Uh, there's a recurring theme at this event. And we are gathered here because we're all committed to individual and systemic accountability. That is the recognition that was made from the President's task force. It's a recognition that individual police departments have made such as in Dallas, and that various foundations and outside groups, such as the Cato Institute, have made. 
And so what we are trying to understand is how can all these disparate stakeholders move towards greater systemic accountability and elephant in the room? How do we do so in what is a, a surprising new political environment where a partner for the last number of years, both in the White House and the State Department, will no longer be with us? What I've been advocating uh, pretty much everywhere is that going forward, accountability reform is a local-driven process with outside stakeholders, with groups like these, helping move it along. So what I'm going to specifically talk about today is my specialty. I am the independent police auditor for the city of San Jose. Uh, I am a civilian oversight professional. And our office, the office of the IPA, essentially is uh, the complaint investigation auditing structure for that city. And in that position, we get to see firsthand what a community's concerns are, where risks are developing, and how to better manage them for the benefit of community well-being. Uh, what struck me, uh, referring to an earlier panel, about Heather Thompson's blood in the water was in part the failure of prison administrators, both in Auburn State Prison in Attica, to take complaints seriously and instead brush them off as the machinations of radicalized leaders whose views should be suppressed lest they take hold amongst the general prison population, where they completely missed the point that those so-called radical leaders were merely voicing the views that had already taken hold amongst the general population. The truth is that when a governing system does not provide those that it governs with an adequate means to bring complaints and have such complaints taken seriously, it is shirking one of its fundamental obligations. The First Amendment contains a number of rights, free speech, a free press, free exercise of religion, and, but there is one provision that is really rarely discussed. And it says, Congress shall make no law abridging the right of the people to petition the government for a redress of grievances. According to the First Amendment Center, the original draft of the First Amendment contained only assembly and petition, not speech, press, or religion. It was considered that fundamental. This was not an accident. One of the root causes that led to the Declaration of Independence in 1776 was the failure of King George to take the colonies seriously. Our repeated petitions have been answered only by repeated injury, it says in the Declaration of Independence. The capability to ask the monarch for relief was first found in the 13th century in the Magna Carta, when King John recognized the right of barons to petition the king. And after the Glorious Revolution in 1689, the Declaration of Rights recognized the right of all subjects to petition the king. But they were behind the times of the colonies. The Massachusetts Body of Liberties recognized a broadly defined right for all persons, for every man, whether free or not, 
shall have the liberty to present any necessary motion, complaint, petition, bill, or information. That right in the Massachusetts colony even extended to indentured servants and to slaves. So the fundamental right enshrined in the First Amendment today is haphazard when it comes to the very vulnerable populations that are most likely to come into contact with the most visible arm of the state, which is the police. The Department of Justice found in the Ferguson Pattern and Practice Investigation Report that factors that made it difficult or impossible to lodge complaints or a lack of confidence in the complaint process likely deterred citizens from filing complaints about police behavior. And this issue is not unique to Ferguson. Their complaints are either discouraged or met with hostility to deter the filing of the complaint. And when they were taken, complaints were inadequately investigated and complainants were subject to retaliation. And this is not unique. And as we'll see, it is actually an indicator for unrest, for social unrest that is often missed. Now, does that sound familiar to Attica in 1971? where indicators of unrest were missed and basically instead brushed off as, again, machinations of radicals. Earlier this year, the United Nations High Commissioner for Human Rights issued a remarkable report which confirmed what many already believed, that inadequate protection of economic, social, and cultural rights is a prelude to civil unrest. What it found is that with Tunisia at the opening of the Arab Spring, Rio de Janeiro before the World Cup, which saw hundreds of killings at the hands of the police, and Ferguson and Baltimore all have in common are unbalanced power distribution, discrimination, and equality. In other words, if you look at Ferguson, you look at Baltimore, you look at Rio, you look at Tunisia, you look at other places, you see the same pattern recur time and time again. The uprising is rarely about the spark. Baltimore was not about Freddie Gray. Ferguson was not about Mike Brown. Tunisia was not about somebody killing themselves as a sign of protest. It was about the deeper underlying root causes which led to those social tensions. So if we look at those violations, if we take a deeper look in domestically, you see the same language which we saw from the UN High Commissioner for Human Rights here in the United States, Brookings Institute. Here's what they found. Like Ferguson, many of these changing suburban communities are home to out-of-step power structures where the leadership class, including the police force, does not reflect the rapid demographic changes that have reshaped their place, these places. I'll give you that example. St. Louis is perfect. What do you have in St. Louis? Significant income inequality, or what one could say is entrenched poverty, which is reflected in ethnic and racial segregation. So you have inequality and poverty overlaid on top of segregation. So in St. Louis, you have heavily segregated African-American community. You see similar patterns in East Austin. You see similar patterns in Minneapolis. So when you have poor communities which are segregated out of the mainstream 
and you have a police force, which does not look like those communities that they're policing. The, the mainstream part of the community, in other words, the power structure, they're using the police essentially as the gatekeeper, right? Keep the impoverished minority community under control to keep crime away from the downtown business district, and you're doing your job. The flip side, though, is that that causes significant corrosion of trust in those communities of color. So this is simply not unusual. Going back to the UNHCR report, it found five consistent warning signs that portend civil unrest across the globe. Food crises, which while not as critical in the US, think of the food deserts in impoverished urban areas. Youth unemployment. Many studies link youth unemployment with social unrest even in developed countries. Health crises, inadequate access to health. Water crises, think Flint, Michigan. And displacement, think gentrification. As you push out longstanding families of color out of urban areas as gentrification takes over. All of these things cause social tension. And then what the UNHCR report says to look at is to look at the risk factors and indicators to help you identify where potential social unrest could be coming from and then develop plans to mitigate those risks. And here are the things that they, the six risk factors that they found. Severe inequality between, between ethnic groups, lack of access to effective grievance mechanisms, and lack of meaningful access to decision makers. In other words, you shut out of this conversation, you shut out of the system, and when you want to complain, you have no one you can complain to. Lack of respect for free and informed consent, water cannons, shrinking democratic space, and decreased press freedom. So those are all things to look out for. And I go back to the ones I highlighted in yellow. Lack of access to effective grievance mechanisms. What did I say before? The police department, they are the face of the government franchise. They are the people who most individuals come in contact with when they do come in contact with the government. Therefore, that is the grievance system which should be more robust than any. So looking at that backdrop, let's talk a bit of where you can find effective grievance systems, robust complaint systems where hopefully the public can believe that, okay, if I have an issue with a negative encounter with a police officer, I can file a complaint, it will be taken seriously, it will be investigated, and ultimately I can feel like it was a trustworthy system which does what? Enhances legitimacy. Which um, brings me to the mission of my office. The view that with effective oversight, you can actually strengthen the grievance mechanism. The mission of my office at the Independent Police Auditor is to provide independent oversight of and instill confidence in the complaint process through objective review of police misconduct investigations. Notice how our mission, going back to Tracy's conversation, is about procedural justice. It is about the process being fair and objective. Um, so how do we do that? Well, first of all, we are alternate complaint intake site. In other words, folks can file a complaint either directly to the police department or with my office. We monitor investigations, particularly investigations involving 
uh, officer-involved shootings and in-custody deaths. We audit investigations for their objectivity, their thoroughness, their fairness, and their timeliness. We also do statistical trends analysis and help identify risks. Based upon those analyses, we make policy recommendations, uh, particularly focused on constitutional policing issues and use of force accountability. And finally, we do community outreach, which is a critical component, component of what we do because the work that we do is driven by complaints. And if people do not know that we exist and what our mission and services are, they don't know that there is an avenue to file a complaint. So community outreach is really important. And why? Well, we receive about half of the 300 complaints taken in a year by the city of San Jose. The other half are received by the San Jose Police Department. In 2015, there were 117 allegations of excessive force. We audit the investigations of these allegations. We make a determination whether we agree, disagree, close with concerns, or agree after first review, where we noted concerns with compliance with our audit criteria and recommended corrective action with either further investigation or analysis. Our core criteria is that the internal affairs investigation be timely, objective, thorough, and fair. My office has been in existence since 1994 and was voted into the city charter in 1996. So we have more than 20 years of experience doing this. I believe that this robust complaints investigation and oversight structure is one reason that the residents of San Jose have confidence in the police department. This does not mean they're not issues, but it means that there, there's always a set of eyes and ears to underscore the importance of the right for redress of grievances. And what are these benefits of legitimacy? Well, to piggyback on what we just heard about police legitimacy, in my view, the twin pillars of trust are transparency and accountability. When you get that increased trust, you've increased the legitimacy of your police forces. And that is found, again, this is not my research, this comes from my esteemed colleague on these panel and Tom Tabor, that you can find benefits to legitimacy in three different areas. One, more cooperation during police contacts. You see less defiance during traffic stops, for example. Two, more cooperation to, to report crimes and to be a witness in crime. And three, you actually, the research actually shows decreases in crime rates where, where the police are viewed legitimacy. Now, so having said all these things, having an effective grievance process, a right to redress of grievances, is not the silver bullet. It does not solve everything. But in your community, you should be asking these things. What is the complaint process for my police department? Number two, who is investigating complaints in my city? Is it the police department or is it an outside agency? Three, is anyone overseeing these complaint investigations? You know, if they all happen internally out of sight where no one can see the investigation or the results or the outcomes, will the community find them trustworthy? Four, is the process transparent and consistent? Look, if it's not transparent, trust and legitimacy is undermined. And I see that firsthand in California. In 1978, the legislator passed a Peace Officer Bill of Rights. And the Peace Officer Bill of Rights contained the most stringent privacy restri restrictions on officer personnel files 
in the United States. Personnel files of officers in California are considered confidential. And what that means is that the public has no way of knowing what complaints have been received by an individual officer, what complaints have been sustained, how much force an individual officer has been involved in. It is all protected by privacy laws. And this is completely 180 degrees opposite of, for example, the experience in Texas, where I can go, for example, to the Austin Police Department website, and I can see by officer name of sustained complaints and uh, imposed discipline. Now, this has all been done in the name of officer safety. The problem I'm having, though, California, is that if in the name of officer safety there is almost complete secrecy in California, how can Texas and also Florida be so transparent without impacts in officer safety? I think it belies reality. Next, is the department and oversight continuously trying to improve its systems? That's the fifth question. Is it customer experience oriented, is what I'm saying. Number six, are there community satisfaction surveys to measure trust in the process? And seven, what can you do as experts, as informed citizens, to help improve those systems? Look, an effective grievance system is, as I said, it's not a silver bullet. But it is an important component in a collective decision to bend the arc of history towards justice rather than towards social unrest. Thank you. Uh, good afternoon. I want to uh, thank uh, Jonathan in particular and Cato in general for uh, inviting me to today's uh, conference and to be on this panel with a group of terrific speakers. So uh, I'm going to be focusing on technology. Of course, today we live in an age of rapidly changing technology, and the police aren't immune from those changes. Police departments around the world are, uh, and in the United States in particular, are interested in all kinds of new technologies. Here in the United States, there are departments large and small that, are, that want to adopt predictive policing software, social media analysis software, license plate reader technology, and the like. Law enforcement agencies understandably want to identify new ways of figuring out how to investigate crime and to identify suspicious behavior. And yet these kinds of technologies can also raise alarm bells about surveillance, privacy, and civil liberties. So what's going to be on the horizon? What's going to be the next technology for police? So I have no idea. You know, I, if I'd be a betting person, I'd lose. But I do think that we can learn something about our current experience for whatever is on the horizon. So here's the question I'm going to pose. What can we learn from our current experiences for whatever is the next big, big thing in police surveillance technology? And I think the answer lies in our experience with police body cameras. So it's been more than two years since the protests surrounding the fatal shooting of Mike, Michael Brown by Officer Darren Wilson in Ferguson, Missouri. Ferguson, of course, sparked protests, generated a hashtag, and drew national attention to problems about police accountability and oversight. Today, in 2016, nearly every police department wants a body cam program. And at first, their use seemed like a clear, obvious, simple solution 
to community trust and police oversight, but the reality has been far from that simple. It turns out that when police officers use body cameras, we get new problems of their own. But I want to point out that many of these problems were entirely foreseeable and thus totally preventable, or if not totally, then largely preventable. So how can we do better next time when whatever the next surveillance technology comes around? So I think we can sort of learn five big lessons from the use of police body cams. So lesson one, first, don't rush to embrace the next police surveillance technology if we don't have a clear idea of how the police are going to use it. Any technology that enables the mass collection, storage, and potentially endless reuse of information about individuals can easily become a tool of surveillance, even if it's initially praised as a tool of reform and accountability for the police. So again, take body cameras. Although some police departments had already adopted body cameras before 2014, the year of the Ferguson protests, that year was a breakthrough year for police body cameras. When a grand jury declined to indict uh, uh, Officer Darren Wilson for the fatal shooting of Michael Brown, Brown's family called for every police officer working the streets in this country to wear a body camera. Faced with mounting calls to respond quickly to concerns about excessive force and racial bias, police departments saw, and understandably, in body cameras, a, an obvious and visible response. This was a way of doing something about the problem. So the hope was that a camera on every police officer working the streets would prevent swearing contests about what actually happened in violent encounters, and also to deter police misconduct. So that promise has only been partially fulfilled. So I think it's fair to say that in the near future, nearly every police department is going to have police office, uh, sorry, uh, body cameras for some of its police officers. But it turns out that their adoption has become very complicated, even for those departments that have already uh, started to use them. You know, not everybody wants to be recorded, including victims of sexual assault, domestic violence, police informants, many others. Some police officers don't want to wear them. In other cases, police officers can fail to turn on their body cameras or have their body cameras fall off, and thus they fail to record important information. In addition, whether the public can see the resulting video depends a lot on what the state's law says about public records, how a law enforcement agency interprets that law, what a department's own guidelines say, if they have any guidelines at all. And so the resulting video itself can be a subject of a lot of dispute. And I should mention also that in some circumstances, the video that results from a body camera can occasionally be altered or deleted through intention or accident. Second lesson, don't adopt the surveillance technology first and hope to work out the policy and regulatory details later. I know it's dumb, right? You're laughing. But it's true. A technology by itself doesn't provide police accountability. It's the policies behind it that do. So if, you go, if you're going to have the next big thing in police technology, you can guarantee that state and local governments 
can and will squabble over the details, the regulatory details. And worse yet, they might not be able to agree at all about anything. So in my home state of California, we've seen a second straight year in which lawmakers have failed to adopt a single police body camera bill. We cannot decide on what we want to do. And yet, many agencies around the state have already begun their body camera uh, um, programs. So when it comes to these kinds of issues, you know, of course, there is also the, uh, the, the issue of uh, uh, public records requests. You know, should those be incorporated into the larger body camera question? What does it mean? We can't figure that out as well. So again, to take the example of California, um, very few police departments in the state, including the LAPD, release body camera video outside of a courtroom because they rely on, a, uh, uh, on an existing uh, law enforcement exemption for investigative records. And California is not alone. Why does that matter? Because police body cameras, once an, an agency decides to use them, have raised many complicated questions. So I'll just give you sort of a sh short running list. Right? Should police officers have individual discretion to turn body cameras on or off? And if so, when? Can individuals ask a police officer in front of them to turn off their cameras? Should the officer comply? When the police don't follow their own guidelines about when to use body cameras, what should happen? Who should be given legal access to body camera video, and in what circumstances? Once an agency has body camera video, how long can they keep it? Can that video be repurposed over and over again in a kind of time machine where we can look back on everything for any purpose? Can other technologies, like facial recognition technology, be incorporated into body cameras? So without an answer to any of these questions in the form of a regulation or a guideline or a state law, body cameras can easily become all-purpose surveillance tools. Third lesson. Don't forget that a surveillance tool used by the police will meet resistance from the police. So as all of the panelists here have already have mentioned, you know, police are under greater scrutiny than ever. Um, and we can may perhaps all agree that in some ways that's justified because of the enormous power we grant to the police. Right? But we also shouldn't be surprised when police officers respond much in the way that any of us would if our employer said, hey, would you mind if we just watched you all the time? <laughs> so without a buy-in from rank-and-file officers and their unions, you can expect, you can guarantee that surveillance technology used by the police will res meet resistance, shirking, sabotage, and criticism by the police. So again, body cameras, our experience. A quick one. For example, the Boston Police Department asked for 100 officers to volunteer for its six-month body camera pilot project. And there was a, a bonus, too. No one came forward. Instead, the police union sought an injunction to halt the project, which a judge denied. Still no volunteers. The pilot project will now proceed with the officers chosen at random by the department to test out the cameras. Of course, that doesn't represent the way all police departments have responded to body cam projects. But this, too, I think it was an entirely foreseeable response. Fourth lesson. When it comes to a new police technology, one that 
is possibly one that, that uses surveillance. Don't let one vendor dominate the market for the technology. Maybe this resonates particularly <laughs> here. Right? When one company controls the market for a technology sold to police departments, that company's choices guide and limit police choices. I want to put it very simply, right? And that is, I know it's not the most obvious point, but product design can affect democratic policing. So for example, nearly every body camera on the market today has a buffer. In other words, it's constantly recording, let's say, 30 to 60 seconds before the officer actually presses the button to record. So when there's a buffer in place, should it record just video? Should it record audio and video? That can have big consequences later if we're trying to figure out what happened in some violent or even fatal encounter between an officer and an individual. Who makes that choice? It's the company. Should a body camera used by a police officer have a stealth mode in which the officer can record without the person being recorded knowing about it? That has democratic consequences, but it is a product design choice. These are not choices made by the police. So if you have one company that has an outsized, outsized influence on these matters, that has a distorting effect on policing. And if that company already has established relationships with police departments, it can do things like encourage sole source contracts with police departments. Those things can also in turn strain city budgets and also raise ethical questions. And it's a problem known to law enforcement agencies as well. So in a recent survey of 70 law, large law enforcement agencies uh, that was conducted by the major cities chiefs association, one of the biggest takeaways in the survey by the association was that technology decisions were being driven by, quote, vendor selection, rather than being identified by the needs and objectives of the agencies themselves. Product design can have effects on democratic policing. So case in point, the rise in police body cameras has been very good for Taser International. With its Axon unit, Taser controls roughly three quarters of the police body camera market. The company claims to have relationships with 17,000 of the country's 18,000 law enforcement agencies and to have won 32 of the 39 body camera contracts in major city departments. According to the Wall Street Journal, Taser reportedly has coached police departments to avoid competitive bidding. And another fact that people may not be aware of, actually it's not the cameras that are particularly profitable. The real profitability lies not in the cameras, but in the cloud. So Taser's Axon unit also has what's called evidence.com. It provides cloud storage for the data from all of the body cams and software support that's far more profitable than the cameras themselves. Why? Because a police department is not going to buy new cameras every year, but it will have an annual subscription to the cloud storage service and software support. Taser, and this, these are, this is language that Taser uses itself, it wants to be the apple of police technology. It wants you to become, police departments, to become dependent on the ecosystem. So fifth and final lesson, 
don't rely too heavily on the president to provide guidance on how best to demand accountability and transparency from local departments. And I'm kind of echoing with what other panelists have said already. Contrary to media reports, the president does not control local policing. The president, of course, can be very influential. He or she, someday, can draw national attention to problems in policing like no one else can. But administrations change, and those changes can usher in radically different attitudes on policing. But the important thing to keep in mind is that laws that strike the balance between law enforcement needs and civil liberties can come from every level of government, and they should. In places like Oakland, California, in Seattle, in Boston, local communities are either, either informally or formally putting into place oversight mechanisms so that they have some input and accountability uh, mechanisms for police departments that want to adopt new technologies. It's also the case, of course, that nonprofit organizations that assemble data or legal advocacy organizations that bring challenges to the use of technology when civil liberties are threatened can become an essential part of that balance. So of course, going back to Ferguson where I started, after the Ferguson protests, of course, as, as we've already talked about on the panel, President Obama signed an executive order that created the task force on 21st century policing of which Professor Mears was a member. That task force report, among other things, talked about the potential of technology to improve police accountability, including body cameras. What signals uh, President-elect Trump uh, is going to send about policing once he actually becomes president aren't entirely clear, though I think it's safe to say it's probably not going to be anything resembling what uh, President Obama has done. But I think the important thing here as we think about the long path of police reform and oversight is that these issues don't necessarily begin and end with the president alone. So those are my five tips and lessons. Thanks. Thank you so much. Um, I am going to operate uh, to take the moderator's prerogative as some of my predecessors have done and ask the first question. Um, Max, when you're dealing with, you, you talked about the blue wall of silence, and it's something that I've obviously worked a lot with in uh, police misconduct. And I was wondering, how do you break that down? And particularly, do you find it's difficult to like try to break that down as a member of leadership versus like your frontline uh, officers? Yeah, so there's another article written recently about uh, how um, the, the, the president's uh, 21st century policing document was not well received by rank and file officers. And I mentioned that in, just in passing, but it goes to the sociology of, of policing and, and the in-groups that, that individual line officers form. And punishment, uh, discipline uh, isn't the be-all, end-all. Um, we, can, we can discipline officers for, for misconduct uh, from now uh, until the end of time. But where we'll, I think we'll realize our greatest success is in that transformational aspect of the culture. And instead of just uh, addressing the misconduct, we have to do that. But we also have to encourage and uh, legitimize a system that, that, that rewards 
the positive aspects of, of police behavior. And, and, but, but it's a challenge. I mean, uh, if, if I put my life in your hands um, and we go out on patrol, and make no mistake, it's a, it's a dangerous job. Two officers were shot in, in Georgia before we came on, uh, before we went to lunch. Um, but that can't be the only narrative, uh, that it's a dangerous job. We volunteered for this job. Uh, and we do so with an understanding of the risks. We will never be able to mitigate all of the dangers in policing, regardless of what technology or, or apparatus we adopt. Um, so uh, legitimizing and, and, and um, uh, accentuating, if you will, the positive aspects of accountability and, and that culture, I think, is, is the way to go. Okay. And now we'll open up to questions. Right over here on the aisle. Uh, hello, I'm a retired New York City police. Um, I, I, this question is for Mr. Katz, but it does, I want him to just kind of touch on some of the sociological issues uh, in policing uh, talked about by Mr. Gowan. Apart from investigating assessment and police policy review, what other pressing concerns have you identified or encountered that makes your job especially challenging? <laughs> uh, I think it's, it'll be two things. Uh, Number one is uh, being clear with the community about what our role is. I think uh, sometimes uh, some members of the community uh, expect our office to be results-driven. In other words, they're expecting there to be a particular outcome from their complaint, and we're not an advocate for a complaint. We are an advocate for a fair and objective process, and that process has to be fair and objective both to the complainant and to the police officer. Uh, the second challenge I've recognized is particularly with use of force complaints, of understanding when we get a complaint about force, of how that particular incident fits within the bigger picture. Uh, by city charter, uh, I can only see force related to a complaint, but there are other trees out there in the forest which are forest without a complaint where often there are significant issues. Why somebody does not file a complaint or files a complaint can be rather arbitrary, depending upon uh, their knowledge about uh, the complaint system, uh, their access to a telephone, whether or not they've been charged with a crime and their lawyer has advised them not to file a complaint so they're not subject to questioning, their mental health status. Uh, the second largest group of people we have who file complaints to our office next to the people upon whom force was used are mothers, moms of their adult sons usually who are in jail. Uh, so getting that knowledge out there is really critical. Thank you, you all have been excellent. Um, as a professionally trained clinician who has worked in Ward 8 and um, originally from Baltimore and aware of what went on with Freddie Gray, and the mess and the police chief there used to be the police chief in Oakland, California, who handled the gang unit. But I appreciate all of your comments, and I've worked in Seattle in different places. My question is to Major Garen and Ms. Maris. The major theme here is trust and accountability with citizens and the police department. That seems to be all over, universal, uh, everywhere today, and what's been happening the past few years. So I think, I don't remember who said this, one of the concerns you have, or with not in different neighborhoods, and I've worked in all of them with different cultural groups, you want they want you all 
to look like us. And I was surprised when you said the black community um, it gets involved, but when it comes to police coming reporting, they don't. So how would you, what do you mean by that? You want, the community wants the police to look like us. What does that mean and how would that improve relationships with the police and the citizens in a positive manner? Do you want me to go first? Sure. Um, you know, it's interesting. I think at the time when we were doing our work on the President's Task Force, many people thought that increasing diversity of police force forces would actually lead to less use of force. Um, you know, that in people's minds, they thought that there was a direct connection between those two things. I'm not saying that it is or is not. I, the, the research on it is is not very clear, and to the extent that there is, it doesn't actually seem to bear that out. But it does seem to be the case that people want police forces that look like them for the same reason that they want political leaders to reflect who they are, this idea you know, there are lots of ways you can show members. It's weird, I can't see you, so. <laughs> um, there are lots of different ways you can show different groups that they matter, you know, for purposes of diversity and inclusion. And one way you can do that is by having your police force reflect, you know, the demographic variation of the community that they serve and protect. And that's why, at least in the President's Task Force, we put recommendations about diversity and inclusion of the force into the section on en enhancement of trust and legitimacy. I think it's one of those things that signals belongingness, um, you know, signals that you matter to the government that is in charge of at least promoting your well-being. And, and I'll add that, and I, I go back to, to Jonathan Haidt uh, from time to time, but he talks about the human brain being uh, a narrative processor versus a logic processor. So it's the interaction that we seek, um, that we need to seek. It's that contact theory. It's that um, it doesn't always have to be you looking like me, but I think that's a great step. You need to be representative of your community because that, that opens many doors. And then you have to have that contact with that community in other than enforcement situations uh, because uh, it, and it's the, the whole argument against Syrian refugees. Well, we, we, we understand that rhetoric of fear and we don't want that in my, our community, uh, except for the ones that are already here that we know because they're our next door neighbors and we talk to and we're okay with them. That's because we've had contact with them. We've had that relationship building and, and that's absolutely what the police department has to do. Diversity of race and culture is, is a big part of that, uh, but it's the, the conversations and the narratives and the exchange of information and the getting to know each other. I think that's important as well. If I could add, I, I think there's gonna be an increased phrase used in police training, which you see in other areas like social work, and that's increased cultural competency, mm. uh, which I think is really important. And the comparison I would say is that people will be surprised at the similarities between uh, police culture and between African-American culture in some aspects. And that is having a sense of history. Just how Max here is going to be able to name the officers who were killed in July by name for the rest of his life. You can go to any large agency and they can tell you about officers who are killed in their department and what occurred, the circumstances, the tactics that were used, even of officers who predated their service in the department. And you can go into the African-American community 
And you can say Jonathan Crawford. You can say uh, Jonathan Fennell. And those names mean something because there is that common history. And one of the challenges we've had over the last couple of years is that the common history of an African-American being killed by the police in your neighborhood, that neighborhood partially through social media has become national. So you have these two, you have these two cultures, policing culture, African-American culture. African-American culture has, you know, they, they're going to be African-American forever, the rest of their lives, and they want to be understood. And I think police officers are asking to be understood as well that the job that they have uh, is difficult and has challenges. And I think that increased cultural competency by the police of the places that they police will lead to better results. Uh, right here on the front. Hi, uh, I'm Samira Daniel Daniels. Uh, I've been interested in the task force on uh, uh, President Obama's task force on policing. Uh, I want to uh, just connect the two points just raised. One, uh, you know, of this competency, uh, the, the, the cultural competency. It, it sort of flies in the face of what was mentioned earlier by Ms. Mears, where um, you know, the, uh, the, the, there hasn't been an increase in the trust towards uh, uh, police, uh, e you know, across the board. I think you made a comment, something similar to that. And I just wondered whether uh, what you're raising about cultural competency uh, falls into this in, in a coherent way. Sure, I'll be really brief about it. I'll, I'll give you the example of uh, cultural competency where police officers on campus, in my opinion, should be trained in teen youth development. So they actually understand why do teens act the way that they do. Mm -hmm. So when a police officer on campus en encounters a 16-year-old girl who's having an emotional meltdown, that the officer understands what that experience she's having at that moment, she's having an emotional meltdown, rather than perceiving, oh, she's being defiant, therefore I'm going to use force to end that defiance. Now, ap apply that to different segments of our community where different people uh, respond to stimulus and to situations in different manners. And it's increasing that mindset of saying for the officer, I have different options I can use here rather than the binary choice of force or not force. Excellent. Mm -hmm. In the back. So basically, is partial legitimacy ever a thing? When we talk about legitimacy, it tends to be, you know, either you have legitimacy or you don't. But especially if it's in part through individual interactions, is it something where, you know, a particularly, you know, good or bad interaction can reduce or increase legitimacy? Or does it just happen as a light switch, you know, once there's a critical mass of things that make the population feel that their concerns are being heard? Right. Is partial legitimacy a thing? I mean, look, we I mentioned the four factors of procedural justice, and it is clear that if you are going to have something that we would want to call um, legitimacy, that all four factors matter. So, for example, many policing agencies will sometimes say, well, as long as we're just nice when we stop someone, you know, I actually use that as an example to illustrate one of the factors, then that's all we need to do. That's wrong. 
um, you know, we know that all four factors matter. But it's also true that just because you do all of those things, you're not necessarily going to have an increased perception of legitimacy. And we know that as you do more of those things, it's beneficial. So I don't think that it's, you know, that it's binary. Um, but it is also true that you can have a dosage, if that makes sense. I'd only add that as many people as you have in a given community, that's the number of viewpoints of and grades of legitimacy that you have. So I think you can look at it as an aggregate, but individually, everybody's going to have their own opinion on where they are on that bar of legitimacy. Can I add something to that? That's actually a really important point. Um, we know from looking at some other work that Andrew Papachristos has done with um, Dave Kirk, not the piece that Major Guerin mentioned, but um, this is a piece in Chicago. We know that if you have more variation and legal cynicism, which is a concept that's related to procedural justice, that that's associated with lower crime rates. So we know that you, if you have sort of universally low perceptions of legitimacy, that's bad. That has absolutely been established. Well, thank you so much. Uh, I'm sorry we are out of time for questions. Uh, please stay seated. Our uh, uh, keynote speaker, Adam Foss, will be coming up very shortly. And please thank our panel.